One of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life is to get to help connect people to Jesus. I remember the very first person I ever led to the Lord. He was a, a youth in our youth group, and we were at a youth revival at a church camp. And the altar call came and was just about to be over, and he wasn't going forward. And he was, I mean, he was shaking, he was crying. Um, and the only time I've ever done it, but I, I walked up to him and I said, do you, wanna, do you need to go forward and want somebody to go with you? He said, yeah, I do. So we went to the altar, we knelt down, and I, I led him to the Lord right there. And, and, and that was just, to me, one of the best things ever. I mean, I, I have never forgotten that day. And I look forward to every opportunity I have to get to help connect people to Jesus. I love to do that because Jesus is so very good. You know, the, the message about Jesus is the best news the world has ever heard. The message about Jesus is usually called the gospel. And in the New Testament, the word that's translated as the gospel could also be very literally translated as good news. The gospel is good news because the gospel is about Jesus. And Jesus is the good news. When you think about it, everything really is about Jesus as far as Scripture is concerned. All of the Old Testament tells us about a Messiah that would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would take our sins upon us, who would take those, the sheep that had wandered, and bring them back to the right path. The New Testament, when you get to the Gospels, it tells us who this Messiah is, and it shows us what He did and how He accomplished what the Old Testament said He would do. Acts through the book of Jude, it reveals to us the difference that Jesus makes because He has come. Book of Revelation reminds us that Jesus is coming again. Everything is all about Jesus, and Jesus is good news. Right? Everything about Jesus is good news. His sinless life is good news for those who have fallen short of God's glorious standard. His sacrificial death is good news for those who have earned the wages of sin, which is death. His victorious resurrection is good news for those who seek life and life more abundantly. His life-changing power is good news for those who realize just how broken they are and that they are unable to fix themselves. Everything about Jesus is good news. Everything Jesus teaches is good news. Everything Jesus does is good news. Everything Jesus calls on us to do is good news. Everything about Jesus is good news. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that shows us in part what it means for us that Jesus is good news. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. That's page 797 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees complained and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until they find it. 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found this peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we love you and we want our lives to bring glory and honor to your name. We want all that we say and all that we do to testify of the change that you have made in our lives. We want everything that we say and do to testify that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Father, we live in a world that. That is not just overly friendly with a message about Jesus. Or they're okay with an idea of a God. But Jesus is kind of a dividing line. Jesus separates what's acceptable from what's not. And Lord, the world wants us as believers to be afraid. And to be ashamed. To tell people about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and why he's the most important person that has ever lived. Father, there is a temptation to allow that fear to seep into our heart. We know that Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel, but God, the way the world mocks Jesus and the way the world mocks the gospel, it, there is a temptation for us to be ashamed of the gospel. Let it not be so. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been timid about telling people about Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been ashamed of the message of the cross. Forgive us, Lord, when we have shirked away our opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for minimizing what Jesus saves us from. That there is a wrath that is coming upon this world. Father, today, remind us that Jesus is good news. Remind us that the greatest good we can do in the world is connect people to Jesus. Father, use this passage that we're going to look at today to, to reveal your heart for the lost and, and let that become our heart for the lost. Father, let us go as we leave this place today and, and be different because of your word and your spirit at work in our lives. Father, change us today as believers that we would not be able to look at people the same way. That, God, we would see the value in people that you see. And we would see the love in people that you see. And, and we would see compassion on people like you see. That we would just see people as you see them. Father, deliver us from judgment. And deliver us from criticism. And deliver us from all of the things that 
cause us to act like Pharisees instead of like followers of Jesus. Father, we need today for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and to make a change. Father, let your Holy Spirit take your word and and do great and mighty works in our lives today. Father, let your word and your spirit work together to save the lost. The backslider be restored. Let the weak be strengthened. Let the timid be encouraged. Father, work and do something in all of our lives today that when we left here, we would know that the great and the awesome God of the Bible, He was alive, He was active, and He was at work in our lives. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought to speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in some ways, we can all relate to these stories, can't we? I mean, we... Sometimes we lose things. You ever lost something that you couldn't find? Looking at you, Kelly Ross. You ever lost something that you couldn't find? Your, your keys, your phone. We, I mean, probably, well, Erica and Britch may have lost a sheet, but probably the rest of us probably have not a coin. We've lost things and we've felt the need to go out and to try to find them. And, and that's what these stories were about. They were to, to make people kind of relate to them, to understand them. But they, were, they weren't really stories to entertain. Jesus had a specific audience in mind. See, as Jesus went about, He was different than anyone that had ever lived before Him. Jesus was obviously someone who was sent from God. Jesus was obviously someone who at the very least was a prophet of God and who was empowered by the Spirit of God. But Jesus did not act among the people like the religious leaders expected. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus allowed sinners and tax collectors to come and sit down and eat a meal with him. Jesus often intentionally sought out tax collectors and said, come and and follow me. Jesus, he... He dealt kindly and gently and lovingly with people who were living in the worst sort of sin. And this was something the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they couldn't understand. right? Because in this day, the religious leaders, they had a mindset that if you attained a certain level of depravity, God was done with you. right? A tax collector, for instance. A tax collector was considered to be the worst sort of sinner there was. Because a tax collector was typically a Jewish guy or a woman, I think it was always a guy, who has in working for the Roman government to impose an unfair tax upon his own people. Not only that, they cheated their own people to make themselves wealthy. They, they hated them. They considered tax collectors to be the far extreme. That's why whenever it mentions bad sinners, it always, it never just says sinners and includes tax collectors. If there were tax collectors there, it specifically mentions them. But then there were tax collectors and other kinds of sinners. And and people that had reached this particular level of depravity, God didn't want anything to do with them. Right? They were excluded from the kingdom of God. They had cut themselves off from the covenants of God. They, they could not, under any circumstances, could those people ever come back to God. God was through with them. They were through with God. The people of God were through with them. And so they were always and forever social outcasts. But Jesus came. And Jesus went to those people. And Jesus cared for those people. And Jesus, 
He did not judgmental toward those people. He wasn't harsh towards those people. An interesting thing, and this is kind of not in my notes, but an aside that doesn't count against my time, is that when you look at when Jesus was the most harsh, and this is something to look at, because typically what we do is when we talk about dealing with a lost person, we say, well, Jesus was harsh. And he was. And he called people brood of vipers. He called them liars. He called them hypocrites. He asked them how they could escape the damnation of hell. But here's where it gets dicey. Who did Jesus say that stuff to? Tax collectors and sinners or religious people? Religious people. When Jesus dealt with sinners, he was kind. He was gentle. He was compassionate. He was loving. He knew that God still loved them. He knew that God still cared for them. He knew that no one had gone so far outside the kingdom that they could not be brought back in. So his interaction with tax collectors and sinners, it wasn't just because he thought that was a cool thing to do. It wasn't because he was a rebel trying to be different from the world around him, the other religious people. He went to them with a purpose. The only reason he dealt with them was to help them come to know him and to be brought back into the kingdom. So these stories that he's telling here, they are going to be shocking in the minds of the religious leaders of the day. Because not only does he teach that, that God cares for them, but he teaches that God rejoices when the lost people are found, when those that are outside, when they're brought in. He teaches that, the, that God and all of heaven rejoices. Now, the main thing I want us to understand today is just that, that God rejoices when the lost are found. God rejoices when the lost are found. And this is so important because, I mean, let's be honest. Isn't it easy for us to become Pharisees? Now, maybe you're better than I am. Maybe you don't wrestle with Phariseeism in your heart. But to be brutally honest, I do. I do. I can, I can very easily kind of begin to slack in my relationship and my prayer life and my Bible study and, and begin to, to get away from the heart of God towards people that don't know Him and to begin to develop a pharisaical mindset. They're getting what they deserve when bad things happen. Look at that person. Good grief. What a, what a nightmare that person is. Holy cow, can, boy, there ain't no way that person's ever coming to Jesus. Begin to make all of these Pharisee judgments about the salvation of the lost, about God's attitude towards them, and, and, and my judgments are all so wrong. Because there is no one so, so far gone that they can't be brought in. And no matter what someone has done or where they have been, if they come in, God rejoices. But God rejoices when the lost are found. Always. No matter who they were, no matter what they were, no matter what they did, no matter what they look like. God rejoices when the lost are found. Now, let me quickly point out that those who rejoiced, who found it, they said they called their, their friends and their neighbors and they wanted them to rejoice with them. And we'll talk about this a bit more in a minute. But what I want us to understand from this and just at this particular moment is God rejoices. We should too. We're friends of the kingdom. We're friends of the king. We're a part of the kingdom. 
And so you and I, if we're really the friends of the Lord, like we say we are, we're really the disciples of Jesus, like we claim to be. Then when someone comes into the kingdom, when someone comes to Jesus. But our our response isn't our, our response isn't, well, it'll never last. Our response isn't, well, no, I hope they don't come to our church. Our response is to rejoice as God rejoices. We're to act like He acts toward the people who are outside when they come in. Now, before we get into the message, I want to make a point about the word lost, right? Because it talks about a lost coin and it talks about a, a lost sheep. And the other parable that we're going to look at next week is the lost son. But the word lost when referring to people... It has come upon hard times. It is seen as as offensive. And, and it's something that that we we don't talk about much anymore as modern Christians. And and we come up with all these other words to describe people who are outside the kingdom. They are pre-believers or they are not yet saved or they are unchurched or, or all of these other things. And all of that's fine. But we shouldn't shy away from the word lost because it's not a bad word. It's not derogatory and it's not demeaning to people. I mean, if you take the spiritual sense out of it and you say that someone is lost, what do you mean? You mean they're not where they're supposed to be, right? But if if I decide to drive to New Mexico and then I call Scott and say, hey, I'm lost. What does that mean? It means I didn't get to where I was going to go. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. The reality is when you put a spiritual sense with it, it means the same thing. It just means that people aren't where they're supposed to be. See, all people are supposed to be in a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ the Son. That's, that's where we're all supposed to be. And when someone is not there, they're just lost. They're just not where they're supposed to be. So if you're here today and you have never personally embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never developed a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. You're lost. You're not inferior. You're not worse than. You're just not where you're supposed to be. Now, if you are here today and you have developed a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, Even though you're not lost, you're supposed to be concerned about the lost. You're supposed to care about the fate of the lost. You're supposed to work to help the lost be found. Because God cares about the lost. God wants the lost found. And God rejoices when the lost are found. And His people that are found are supposed to be the force that reaches out to the lost and brings them in so they can be found. Now, in this passage, it tells us two reasons. Why the lost matter to God. Why God rejoices when the lost are found. And I've tried to put my points, my two points, in, in a personal way. Because these are very, this is a very personal passage, or at least it should be. We should read ourselves in this passage no matter where we are today. If you're a lost person, you should read yourself into this passage to see how God feels about you. If you're a saved person, you should read yourself into this passage because you were lost at one point. And this reveals how God feels about you then, how felt about you then, and how He still feels about you now. So, first is, I'm valuable to God. I am valuable to God. Verse 
both stories, what was lost had significant value attached to it. In an effort to show the value that God places upon the lost, Jesus increases the value with each story. Right? First, there's one sheep out of a hundred, there's one coin out of ten, and then there's one son out of two. And with it is significant value in each one. It is my understanding that a hundred sheep is not a significant flock. It is just an, an average or maybe even a smallish sized flock in this day. So this wasn't a, a wealthy person who lost a dime. This was an average person who lost a significant source of income. It was important. It was invaluable to the shepherd that he find his sheep. Then there was the one coin out of ten. And, and one coin out of ten was valuable for one of two reasons. First, it could have represented all of her accumulated wealth. Ten coins equaled about ten days' wages. For all of her accumulated wealth to only equal ten days' wages implies that she was fairly poor. Secondly, it could have represented the dowry she brought into the marriage. The dowry that she brought into the marriage was hers no matter what. No one could take it away. Even if her husband dissolved the marriage, she would keep the money. Ten coins likely implies that she came from a poor family and would likely marry into a poor family. So it was a significant amount of money. It was very valuable to her. And Jesus uses these stories to show the value that God places on people who are not where they are supposed to be. And I'm... I'm kind of amazed by the value that God places on people who are not where they're supposed to be. Again, this is, I'm sure, likely the Pharisee within me. But you think about it, people who aren't where they're supposed to be. We, when we weren't where we were supposed to be, the Bible talks about us in terms of being in rebellion against God. I mean, that's, that's significant, right? I mean, that's, that's big. The Bible describes... Those who are not where they're supposed to be in terms of being alienated and enemies by their wicked works and the thoughts of their mind. And yet, despite the fact that, that these people, it's not that God is their enemy, it's that they've made themselves God's enemy. It's that they are hostile towards God by their rebellion against His standards, their rejection of His Son. And so despite the fact they're saying to God, I don't need what Jesus did. Despite the fact they're saying to God, I, I don't care what you said is right and wrong, I'm going to do my own thing. God sees infinite value in that person. Can you imagine? I wonder, as David did in the psalm, who is man, O Lord, that you are concerned about us, that you would look upon us. Why would a holy God, the awesome God of the Bible, why would He care that much? About any of us. But much less those that rebel and push back. And refuse to go where he wants them to be. And so I thought about that. And I thought, why? Well, why is anything valuable? And the value of anything is typically based upon two things. Two, two questions. Who made it? What's somebody willing to pay for it? A Picasso is worth more than a Rosso simply because Picasso painted it. Picasso is also worth more than a Rosso because people will pay millions and millions and millions of dollars for it. So, because Picasso made it, 
it's valuable. And people will buy it for the, that valuable amount, and so it has that value. Well, those are the same two reasons we are valuable to God. You see, the truth is that, that God made me. God made each and every one of us. In the creation story, when it talks about people, people are always, humans are, are separate from the rest of creation. Right? It says about people that we are made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. We are given dominion or authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every and over the cattle and over the, the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created us in His image. And in the image of God we were created, male and female. And then we're different in the way that breath came into us, life. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Everything else, God just said, let there be light, let there be darkness, let there be land, let there be sky, let there be water. Let there be animals, let there be creeping things and swimming things. And then with man, he, he takes dust, he forms it. And then he breathes life into it. And then with woman, he takes a rib and he forms and he breathes life into her. Humanity, we, we are above all of the rest of creation in God's economy. We, we are made in his image. We have been, his breath has been breathed into us to give us life. God told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I, I knew you. So God initially created man, and God has not stopped creating man. Psalm 139 talks about being fearfully and wonderfully made by God. The God that made Adam and Eve, the God that spoke worlds into existence, He, he forms people, He creates them in their mother's womb. And just think about that on a personal level. Before your mom and dad knew each other, before you were a seed coming together, there was a God in heaven who knew you. And there was a God in heaven who loved you. And there was a God in heaven who planned for your life. He planned good things. He planned things that would allow you to prosper. He, he planned things that would give you life and life abundant. It's amazing. We're valuable to God because he he has created us. Right? Rick Warren in the purpose driven church, he said, you're not an accident or the purpose driven life. You're not an accident. Your birth was no mistake or mishap and your life is no fluke of nature. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He was not at all surprised by your birth. He expected it long before you were conceived by your parents. You were conceived in the mind of God. He thought of you first. It's not fate, nor chance, nor luck, nor coincidence that you are breathing at this very moment. You are alive because God wanted, you, wanted to create you. That's awesome. And that's true for, again, all people. All people have value because God created all of them, all of us. But not only did God create us, but God has paid a great price for me. 
God has paid a significant price for our lives. And the price that he paid is one that is familiar to us, but almost too incredible to fully understand. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. A life of of self, a life of sin, a life just doing it our way. That's aimless conduct. It's a vanity life. It's a wasted life. We waste our life when we live our ways. We waste all of our potential when we do it our way. We, we, we live in sin and we just throw it all away. It is a life of aimless conduct and, and it leads nowhere and it accomplishes nothing of any significant eternal value. But God, not wanting us to live that life, He redeemed us out of that. But not with money, because there's not enough silver and gold in all of the world to redeem one of us from our life of sin and our life of aimless conduct. Instead, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. And that's not just a saying, that's a reality. Jesus came to earth and He died on a cross and He bled out on that cross in horrible pain with our sin poured upon Him so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be bought. Jesus wasn't a martyr for the cause. He didn't die because He made the wrong people angry. He died for you and for me and for the lost folks out there. He died to redeem them. From the aimless conduct, from a life of sin, from wasting their life. And all of this was always God's plan. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light. And, and let this be there and let that be there. God, God the omniscient, all-knowing God, He said, I know I'm going to create man. And they're not going to do what I want them to do. But I love them anyway. And they're going to earn the wages of their rebellion. And they're going to earn death, but I don't want them to have that. They're going to be tempted to walk through life and to waste their life. And to end up in eternal judgment. But I have a better plan. Jesus will go. And Jesus will live the life they can't live. And He will die the death that they deserve, but He will rise victorious because He is no sin and He has done no wrong. And because of Jesus, they will be able to be redeemed from all of that. And I can reestablish the relationship with Him that I've always wanted with Him. And then I'll bring them to be with me for all of eternity. That is a high price that was paid for you and I, friends. The price that was paid for us was paid for all of the lost folks out there today as well. Every person that we encounter is someone for whom Christ died. Listen, it doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't take any more of God's power 
to save them than it took for God to save you. They're not any harder for God to save. His blood doesn't take more blood to to cleanse them than it did for us. Jesus died to save them. God has paid an, an incredible price for the salvation of the lost, that they can be brought back to the place where they are meant to be. God did all of this because He wanted to. God created us because He wanted to. God sent Jesus to redeem us because He wanted to. In fact, Ephesians says that all of this brought Him great pleasure. And again, that's an amazing concept. It brought God great pleasure to create me. Who would rebel against Him so often. Fail for so many years. Not even care for much of my life. It brought him great pleasure for Jesus to die for me, knowing that for 19 years I would not really care all that much. Knowing that even when I was aware of God dealing with me, I would resist it because there was sin I wanted to do, that I cared more about the sin that was coming than the Savior that had died. And yet it still brought him great pleasure to do all of that for me. And it brought Him great pleasure to do all of that for you. And it brought Him great pleasure to do all of that for the lost that aren't where they're supposed to be. Pastor Bill Hybel says that you will never lock eyes with anyone who doesn't matter to God. Look around the room today. Everyone in here matters to God. Everyone in here is valuable to God because He made them. And He paid a great price for them. When you go out this afternoon... And you encounter people at the grocery store, the restaurants, the park, whatever you do. Look closely at those people. Don't just gloss over them, but look at them. See them. They're valuable to Almighty God. He made them. He paid a great price for their salvation. When you go home and you look in the mirror, you realize that the person you're seeing is valuable. To God. That God made you. That God paid a great price for you. And God cares about you. And doing all of this brought God great pleasure. That's why God rejoices when the lost are found. Second, is that God wants to save me. The shepherd had 99 sheep that didn't stray. But he wasn't content with that. He wanted all 100 to be where they were supposed to be. The woman still had nine coins. But she wasn't content with that. She wanted all ten to be where where it was supposed to be. The truth for us that God is not happy with just a few people being saved. God is not happy with just most people being saved. God's will is that all people would be saved. 
That's one of the reasons that the gospel is such good news is because we never have to wonder, does God want to save this person? We never have to wonder, does God want to save me? Does God intend to have a relationship with me? Does God intend to have a relationship with them through faith in Jesus? And and I hope most of us in here, we already know that God wants all people to be saved. And he wants all people to be brought to the place where they're supposed to be. But it's good to be reminded of this. It's good to be reminded on a personal level because I think in multiple ways as a as a believer, it's good to be reminded of it because, again, I I don't know how you are. But my failure brings severe feelings of self-condemnation upon me. And I wonder why would why would God really want me? If I'm still just going to think those thoughts and say those words and act in those ways. And yet, here I see that God wants all, and all would include me. And it's easy. I mean, the world, if you notice, the world's different, isn't it? I mean, when I was a kid, the world was pretty easy. It seemed like, anyway, as a kid. I mean, but there, there weren't a lot of the difficult things that we see in our day. Difficult questions. I mean, there... And I don't mean for this to be funny, but when I was a kid, I don't think there were dudes who identified as female dragons. I don't think there were people who identified as cats and lived as kittens. But that is the world we live in today. Now, all of that stuff may not be in Gaiman, but... But it's out there. It's here. I mean, this is this is our world. And it's easy to to look at the weird stuff. And they're just they're tax collectors. They're sinners. They're surely God doesn't want to save a guy who thinks he's a female dragon. a 50 year old man who thinks he's an eight year old girl. We have to be reminded that all includes all. It includes me as a believer who who struggles. It includes the sinner who lives in ways and does things I, I cannot even begin to wrap my mind around why they think the way they act or think the way they think and act the way they act and do the things they do. But all, it includes them as well. Now this gives us confidence as believers as we go out to share the gospel. Because... We will never encounter someone that God does not want to save. We will never encounter someone that Jesus didn't die to redeem. Peter, he said that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some people count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, it's in the context of Jesus' return. Peter said it's going to take a while. And and people are going to start saying, come on now, son, where's the promise of his return? It's gone on for years and years and years and years. And all of this about Jesus is coming back and he's never coming back. 
What's up with that? Peter said, here's the reason. It's not that he's slack to keep his promises. It's not that he's forgotten or he's not concerned or he's not going to do it. But it's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace and goodness of almighty God. Right. It's, it's an act of long suffering, patience with sinful people. For he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you're here today and, and you're lost, you don't know Jesus. God allowed you to wake up with life and breath today to give you an opportunity to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And if God lets you wake up tomorrow morning, it'll be for the exact same reason. To give you one more opportunity for you to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus and to be saved. Every person that woke up today, they woke up. They're outside the kingdom so that God could give them one more chance to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, repent of their sins and be saved. Now, for you and I as believers, this means something for us, too. If we woke up today, that means we're not through. We're still a part of the mission. God gave us life and breath today to give us another opportunity to tell someone about Jesus so they could believe the gospel, repent of their sins and be saved. And if God wakes us up tomorrow morning, it's for the same reason. So that we'll have another opportunity to see someone in need, to tell them about Jesus, they would repent of their sins and believe the gospel. If you're a believer today, you are, you are alive right now because God still has work for you to do. And the primary work God has for all of us to do is to go and make disciples of all nations. So as we go out, we have great confidence in the gospel. We have great confidence that if they're alive there's someone for whom Jesus died. They have an opportunity today. They could be saved. Jesus, he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world. The world through him might be saved. Now, I'm not, I know I'm running out of time, but Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. And the way we share the gospel shouldn't make it seem like he did. Now, to be sure, there is an element where we have to talk about the wrath to come. The wages of sin is death. The sad fact is, many times, that's where we stop. I couldn't tell you how many discussions I've seen online that ended with the believer saying, well, you'll believe it when you're in hell. Whew, boy, you won that person. Good job. Or, or all they did was just talk about what you're doing is sin. What you're doing is wrong. Those who do such things have no part in the kingdom of God. True enough. Where's the good news? Because Jesus, he's not the bad news. He's the good news. He didn't come to condemn the world. They're already condemned. He came to save the world. So as we share Jesus, yeah, we do have to deal with sin and we have to, to be open about it. But good grief, let's not end it there. Let's not leave the people condemned. Let's leave them with hope and good news of a God who loves them and sends His Son that if they believe, they'll be saved. And they won't perish. But they will have everlasting life. 
be very sure you're sharing good news and not just bad news. Again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying minimize sin or don't acknowledge hell and things like that. And that's a part of it. Not always we have to understand the bad news before we see why Jesus is good news. But don't leave them in the bad news. Give them the good news of a Savior that died, of a God who loves. And that He he wants them to be saved. It says that when, when they are saved, that there is great rejoicing. And there's a, a songwriter named Larry Bryant. And he wrote a song. And I have never heard it, but I have seen it. The poem. And here's what he says. It's called When the Angels Rejoice. When the Model T first hit the street, that didn't bring all heaven to its feet. When the first computer was born, they didn't blow O Gabriel's horn. There's only one thing we're sure about that can make those angels jump and shout. It's when the sinner makes the Lord his choice, that's when the angels rejoice. Now, heaven doesn't strike up the band for any occasion at hand. It has to be a special thing to make those angels sing. Now, when the United States became a nation, there was no angelic celebration. But when one lost sinner comes back home, they jump for joy around the throne. There is rejoicing in heaven. Every single time a lost person comes back to where they're supposed to be. No matter who they are, no matter where they've been. And if we're a believer today, we've got to know that. We have to believe it. We have to believe that all people have value to God. And that has to go beyond they have value to God to they have value to me. We ought to see people the way that God sees them. We ought not to see throwaway people. We ought not to see people who are so far gone that we can't stand them. We ought to to see that they are created in the image and the likeness of God and that God paid a tremendous price for their salvation and that God wants them saved. And He wants us to be a part of what He's doing in the world. So if you're here today and you aren't a believer, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be in a relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus. That's where you're supposed to be. But you'll never be there until you recognize you're not where you're supposed to be. As long as you think you can fix it or you can square it away or if you're good enough, it'll overcome it. You'll never get to where you need to go. Stubbornness and pride keep far more people out of the kingdom from where they're supposed to be than pretty much anything else. It's a humbling thing to say, my decisions have led me astray and my decisions will never get me to where I need to be. I just need Jesus. But once you recognize that, you have to go to God. I mean, in the parable that we're looking at next week, once the prodigal realized he wasn't where he was supposed to be, he rose up and he, he went to the Father. 
And he cast himself at his mercy. That's what we have to do. We go to God. And the prodigal, he didn't say, God, I'm your son or father, I'm your son. You, you owe me. God, you know how good I was before I left. God, you know all of this stuff. He, he just said, I blew it. Please just make me a servant. See, if you're going to come to God, you can't come to God with all these demands. Okay, God, you know, I haven't been that bad, so you should give me this. And, and God, it's not that much. And God, all of that. And my parents were good. And so, God, you kind of owe me here. My life was hard. And so you owe me there. Still not where we're supposed to be. When we come to God, we cast ourselves at his feet and we just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we leave it to God to do what he does. And that is he saves, he changes, he fills with the spirit and he makes us a different person. If you're here today and you're lost, friend, God wants you to be where you're supposed to be. You're valuable to him. He made you. Jesus died for you. He is working in your life right now, drawing you to him. Won't you come? Cast yourself at his feet. Cry out for his mercy. And get back to where you're supposed to be. Let's stand.